there is a deep conviction and feeling. I'm like, y'all, I'm not saying this shit because I think it sounds good or it's going to make me sound good. I'm saying this shit because I really fucking believe it, right? And I believe it so much that I'll orient my world and my life and the way that I move through it. And that's poetics to me. Hello and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, ESII. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. I'm Sage, a facilitator, cultural strategist, and architect with ESII. If you stumbled across this podcast and you're not familiar with Emergent Strategy, Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And this podcast is an opportunity to talk with folks who may be practicing emergent strategy in the world in so many different ways. Whether they name it emergent strategy or not, we get to see their work and experience it in the world and say, oh, this is a way we can reshape complex systems and patterns through so many different types of interactions. And today, I'm really excited to talk to our guest, storyteller, and incredibly fashionable human being, Mwende Kitwiwa. <laughs> How are you today, Mwende? I'm good, Sage. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm excited for us to have some time to talk um, because we've been in spaces and talked about emergent strategy for a little bit that wasn't podcast related. So um, this feels like another opportunity mm -hmm. to kind of revisit um, the various types of relationships that folks can have with uh, emergent strategy over time, and particularly given who you are in the world and how you move through it, how it has landed for you. Um, so the first, I'm always interested in origin stories. Call it the comic book nerd in me, right? Like, I'm just really curious. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm really curious how you might have found um, the concept of emergent strategy and when you first found it, what did it do for you? Was there anything about you, what you were looking for that it, it served or a longing that it fulfilled? Or also I've met some folks and when they first read it, they're like, oh, that's cute. And then they put it down. Like, I'm curious what your origin story is. <laughs> um, my origin story with emergent strategy started before the book which I think is what also has like kept me around and kept me a bit more rooted in it as the book and the, the mythology around the whole emergent strategy has taken its own root. <laughs> I remember that when I graduated from college in 2014, I was feeling just real burnt out by whiteness. Um, and one of the folks I had met when I was in New Orleans, uh, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans and I had met Soraya Jean-Louis um, during my time there. And at that time, her and this other person who's a writer, activist, Desiree Evans, had started a group called Wild Seeds, the New Orleans Octavia Butler Emag Emergent Strategy Collective. And this was, I want to say, like a year or two before Emergent Strategy was published. I didn't even really, I didn't know Emergent Strategy was a thing. I just thought it was a cool, kind of long name, but I was into it. And the community was, it's really just magical gathering of 
black women and queer folks, uh, many of them who were a bit older than me at that time. And I think there was a moment where I was also just emerging from organizing on campus and being just like having to posture as this like strong black woman or just, you know, the way you just also have to be in front of whiteness so it doesn't actually seep into your core and really just needing to be around like black tenderness and, and joy and, and space. And I kind of just fell into wild seeds and I didn't know I needed it. I didn't know I was looking for it, but um, it's somewhere that I spent a, a solid amount of time and that's where I was introduced um, to Octavia Butler, to Emergent Strategy, to this entire network of people. Um, and it was through Soraya, who's somebody I refer to as Mama Bird. So that's somebody who really has, uh, in that particular moment of my life, helped me like birth a new, a new version of myself. Um, and that's how I came into the larger network of Emergent Strategy. I don't know how I got the book uh to be honest and i really to this day have no idea how i got the invite to go to the essi thing that i went to but one of the things as i go through different years in my life um where i'm like years of why's and years of why not um where i haven't planned or thought about something then the central question i'll ask is either why or why not and essi caught me in a year of a why not year so i was like i mean ain't nothing keeping me from doing this or whatnot. So I showed up and here, here I still am. <laughs> and so the why not was the accepting the invitation to go to Puerto Rico for the facilitators uh, uh, gathering. Is that no, what you're referring to? The why not was accepting to go to Detroit for the first ESSI gathering. I have no idea how anyone in ESSI knew who I, how I got the invite. I, don't, I wasn't really in the community yet. And then I was. And then you were. <laughs> and when you went to Detroit, what was that experience like in that immersion? Because you've had a, a series of immersion experiences with, with uh, ESII and, and uh, yeah. What did that do for you, for your work, um, for how you thought about emergent strategy? It was challenging. Um, I read the book Emergent Strategy and I feel like it was it was really helpful because it was at a time that I didn't know it, but I can now articulate that I was experiencing movement heartbreak. And really the, the point of break was in, in how to move forward or, or how to just do things, how to get free, how to even just talk to each other, hold each other, communicate with each other. Um, and the book was important to me in that moment because it felt like it, it articulated these things that I had never even sometimes thought to articulate or I had articulated them and they had been so like thoroughly dismissed that it's some that it really felt like a way to be like, finally, there's something to point to that can like tell people like, I'm not just, I mean, first of all, I am mm -hmm. chaos minded. Like that's, that's not what I'm trying to say, but okay. it's just cause I'm chaos minded doesn't mean it's not rooted in like an, an understanding or a belief or something. So that's when emergent strategy hit me. Um, and that's why I accepted the invitation to go. And I, I say I was challenged by it when I got to Detroit because I think I had assumed there would be no white people there. I don't know why I had assumed that, but I did. And then I showed up and it's not just like there was white folks there, but there was, there was whiteness was there. Um, and the ways that it like was not planned for, um, 
or like mitigated really ultimately felt like careless. And it was kind of like the first time I found myself challenged by emergent strategy and this idea of just, you know, like letting things be what they are. When I'm like, mm, but also we can plan for it so that things don't have to be like this, like, or like different sorts of things. So the invitation deeper into emergent strategy was actually my first like challenge um, of it because before that I had really been like someone who was like yes like I, I don't even know where the, I've had like five copies of that book because each time I get it I give it to you know I would give it to people but like you need I gave my first one to this woman in South Africa who we were having the exact conversations I didn't even finish the reading the book yet but we were having a conversation I was like I think I need to give this person this book gave the next one mm -hmm. to my best friend like I was really someone who was trying to engage in the conversations and then the practice of it stopped me a little bit um, and caused me a little bit of pause and hesitation in Detroit. And then, you know, <laughs> the, the, the infamous New Orleans immersion <laughs> also <laughs> happened. Um, well, I, yeah. I, I love part of that story. I'm, you know, challenging that it was and hearing that really clearly. Also, what a demonstration of, of um, generative conflict that might not even necessarily be between two people in the moment. Um, as individuals like mitigating like a mediator conflict but what does it mean mm -hmm. when there's conflict with what you thought what you imagined what you're feeling who's right. handling what right. and then how do you how do you continue to move forward with that as part of now the story of engaging with immersion strategy for you right and I think what was yeah. what was so unexpected for me during that that immersion in Detroit and what I know is was the actual invitation that I got from that space was into a grief process um, that I didn't realize I needed to enter into but one of the the groups kind of invited folks into it and as I started to practice it I was like huh I don't know if this is the space that I'll do it in, but I think I need to do this thing. And I remember um, talking to Selma afterwards and being like, yeah, I can't quite do this right now, but I know I need to do this. And so that emergent strategy gathering, like you're saying, it was, it, it was difficult in, in some ways. It was not what I expected. And then I think it was also at a point in my life where I was really learning to like let go of expectations and kind of just show up and be present to what is. Um, and it was what it was, which allowed everything else to be what it became, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I think that's an important story uh, of, uh, uh, around um, what it means to live with this text, right? Not just to use it, like how do you use it, but what does it mean to live inside it? Um, and I want to I take you back to something you said um, earlier about um, being chaos-minded. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I love that, like this idea, because sometimes we, we want them in spaces where being chaos-minded is somehow read as not strategic mm -hmm. or not mm -hmm. thoughtful. And, and um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say chaos, when you say I'm chaos-minded? Um, what does that mean about how you, how you see things and how things work for you? I realized that order stresses me out. Like there's a certain way that when things are like overly positioned or like regulated or put into place, it makes me it makes me feel constricted and uncomfortable because I think I question the 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 notion that like of of is, you know, like of inherent being. I don't know if I believe that anything inherently just is um or is understood the same even if it is if it is um 
And so when I think of chaos minded, I think of the way that people have observed me and been like, I don't understand how you're seeing rhyme or reason in that like splatter. And I'm like, but the splatter is the rhyme and the reason. And people are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I have no idea. Let's keep talking. And they're like, I'm going to stop talking to you now. And I'm like, damn. <laughs> I lost them. That's the case. Like, and, it, and it's also, I think, um, unnerving to people to be so happily and readily rooted and grounded in the unknown and the not knowing, and that be a place of excitement as opposed to a place of fear. So when I think of chaos, I think of just like what could be as opposed to what is. Order to me is what is. Chaos is what could be. Um, and so when I say that I think of myself as chaos-minded, when I think about how I look at the world, I really understand that, especially when you look at, like, now this is some emergent strategy shit. When you're looking at the world, you're looking at nature and you're looking at how like precise everything is. It's not precise because it's like A, B, C, D, then E, F, G. It's actually 900,000 different languages speaking over and through and translated to each other, but it all makes sense. So this idea that like things have to be ordered in a specific way in order to make sense is something that I've been trying to like, release and let go of for a really, really long time, especially as somebody who grew up um, in a relatively strict, you know, African immigrant household, um, and just also grew up around teachers, you know, <laughs> my parents were educators at different levels throughout their entire lives. They were high school teachers, they were professors, um, and they were community educators in different kind of ways. So just really trying to to understand that it's not like order is completely useless, but in the same way, I don't think chaos is completely useless. And I think too many people put them on this binary of like, we need to get things in order. Otherwise, if they're not in order, then they're out of order and out of order is bad. And I don't believe that the opposite of order is out of order. And I don't believe that out of order is the same as chaos. Because I think chaos is actually a different kind of order. And it's a different kind of understanding and moving through. And just the ways that we've structured this world, particularly under whiteness um, and anti-blackness, is that we want this like hyper-professional, like this, this is the way things are, because it calms people into thinking that they have more control um, or influence or understanding of things. When in reality, like we don't. What we really just have is like place and positioning. And that's really all we can do is move from there. And even the, the, that we have place of positioning, when I'm listening to you, the first thing that started to uh, show up in my mind was, of course, the first verse of Earthseed, of all that you touch, you change, all that you change changes you. The only constant is change. God has changed, shape God, right? Like this idea of like, how do you even think about position in place or, or a concretized sense of order when change is the only constant? I was going to say what's been um, helpful for me is not just, this idea that like uh, change is constant, but also change, change is not new and change is cyclical, right? The Octavia Butler quote that has really actually grounded me is, there is nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. And I had to sit for a while because it, it hit me before I knew why. 
Um, and it, a couple of months later, I was like, oh, and this might sound like some real woo-woo shit. So just, you know, sit with me. <laughs> take, let me, let me take you, let me take you into the sunny part of the chaos, right? Um, where it's like, all right, if we can understand that like human beings, first of all, this, uh, this obsession with like being the first or like the best or the, like this one pinnacle thing is like this really weird thing about individualism that I don't really understand because I don't believe anyone is constructed of just themselves. We are all made up of all of the different people that we've had the opportunity to, to bring into our, our being. You know what I'm saying? The idea is that, you know, human beings, we want to think we're so unique and individual, but at the end of the day, what we are is human, right? And there's so many of us and we've been, you know, we haven't been around for that long in like the cosmic sense of the word, but we've been long around long enough in the human sense of the word where I truly had to like let go of this idea of like new things, you know? Kept trying to think what is supposed to be like my contribution or my like whatever to the world. And that quote came into my life at a place where I was like, oh, there's nothing new under the sun but there are new suns and each of us is a sun. Each of us is a light. And our responsibility isn't to like be this new or the first or the this, the responsibility is to figure out like, what is your orbit? What is your solar system and shine your light in those spaces, you know? And so it's not even about like, what I say is gonna be new, but it might be new to all the people I say it to because I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm that sun. I'm the one that would shine the light on them the same way that people will say things to me. And I'm just like, wow, that is, probably something that I could have Googled, but you were the one who shown that light on me. So it's not that it's new as if like you just uncovered it, but it's, it's the excavating that happens when you're in relationship with people um, that made that quote really, really mean a lot to me. And I feel like I still miss your original question. So I'm gonna ask you to say that so I can bring us totally home. <laughs> well, yeah, you not only brought it home, but you, you, you circled back to, for me, what you said earlier about place and position. So it doesn't have to be new information, but your position might be different. Mm -hmm. The place where you say it might be different, like where it's being, like what you're um, uh, connecting for me in this conversation is um, what is at the home of quantum physics, which is that all things are relational. Mm -hmm. So nothing is, is, it is always the same and it is never the same. Right. 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 It's like nothing is ever the same, but there's something that is always familiar, I think. Want to talk a little bit about, uh, you identify yourself as a storyteller. Uh, and I think folks listening to this have already learned that a little mm-hmm. bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In the best... Not the most straightforward the best. You're like, get a blanket, yes, get a cup, a mug of something warm, and you sit back and you, and you listen and you learn. Do you see storytelling um, as an important component inside emergent strategy? Or how, do you, how is storytelling part of your, your um, theory of transformation for the world? I think outside of emergent strategy, storytelling is how we understand the world, right? I was saying saying earlier um, about my lack of belief in like inherentness and like things just are, right? And I was giving this workshop earlier in the week where I was asking people this question of like, what is the difference between history and mythology, right? And ultimately the difference is believability, right? Like who gets believed? Something can become a mythology or it can become records, facts, all of those kinds of things. 
I was asking how storytelling fits into your theory of change for the world. Oh, so storytelling for me, like, is what we know of the world is just a story, right? We don't actually know anything about, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for none of this shit, except for the last 29 years of my life. You know what I mean? And even that, I wasn't there for half of it. <laughs> like, I just think I was, or I remember what I want to remember. Like, even memory is just a story that our mind tells us to to allow us to move forward with however we want to be or want to remember the past. Um, so for me, storytelling is so important to one human beings, right? There's, a, there's no culture in the world has ever been discovered without stories. So that tells you in and of itself that stories are a way that we, we need to relate to each other, back to relationality, right? Stories are about relationships. They're about talking to each other. They're about speaking and not, not just speaking, right? Storytelling isn't just about the telling of the story. It's also about the listening to the story. Otherwise, what is story? Storytelling don't mean nothing if you don't have a receiver, an audience, or a listener, you know? So it really is about engagement in that sort of way. Um, when I think about right now, we're in this like really, really interesting moment where like, I think we talk about storytelling as if it's this like magical, like storytelling is so great, but we don't really interrogate like storytellers themselves. And like right now we're living inside like a really bad story with a really shitty narrator who like really thinks that this is like a bestseller, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it's just like, wow, this is a lie. But also it doesn't matter because at some point enough people have believed this story that this story has actually become our reality. We are living inside a story that is untrue, but it is real. And so I think when I think about storytelling, I think about what is the intersection of like believability, truth, and also like imagination, because I'm also like, what is reality? Reality is just what we accept to be in front of us, you know? And this is really not, you could get me talking about all kinds of like, do we exist? Do we not exist? What is existence talks that I don't think you want to get me into? But at the end of the day, what, what we understand is like our shared society or even our shared history is really just a collection of stories that we have agreed to believe in together. And right now we're in a moment where people are disbelieving the, the narratives that have been told to us and are starting to not just articulate new ones, but also remember that there are other stories that have been told this whole time. So it's not as if we're just living in one story because one story has always been told, but living in one story that has elevated itself in the midst of all of these other different stories that also tell us about the world that's around us. So I think storytelling is important because one, there is no single story, right? There's so many stories and they're constantly being told, but we really need to just look at who is being listened to when they're telling and then who are the people that are actually get to tell stories and be recognized as legitimate storytellers. And I think that's really important to think about right now when we're in the midst of like the corporate, corporatization of storytelling where people actually are like, oh shit, there is power to narratives and storytelling. So why don't I give you like $22 to come tell your trauma tale over here and then I look good for corporate whatever, but like what has it actually done to the larger narrative that we're living in? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I also think there's levels to stories and storytelling that we don't talk about and there's a way that society is kind of like devalued and disnified storytelling because it is an actually powerful thing. Um, and I think you can see that because of the way that it has been commodified in the last decade as it was starting to gain its own traction. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. So now I am going to connect this, the storytelling to emergent strategy, right? Because 
you know, emergent strategy um, is this idea, uh, at the core of emergent strategy is how do we get in right relationship with change? That's something that you hear emergent strategy, it's, it's in the book, we say it a lot. And so how do you get in right relationship with change and the relationship to storytelling of what stories get told, who gets to tell them? Do you see an, an intersection in those things? Um, in that, how does storytelling help us get in right relationship with change? I think one, it allows us to understand that change is not new, you know? Well, the, the workshop that I was giving earlier was about untelling the, the myth of white supremacy, right? And one of the, the underlying tenets of the myth of white supremacy is that things have always been like this, right? But if you actually tell a story that allows you to understand that we are not stuck inside of the story, it allows people to also think that they can be storytellers, that they can be authors, that they can have agency around storytelling in a way that doesn't feel when you, when you are articulated as a character as opposed to a narrator, if that makes sense. And then when I think about it in specific um, relationship to like how does storytelling impact or influence change or shift change or, you know, the word empower is interesting, but allow people to feel like they can, um, they can be a part of the process of change or not fear the process of change is I also think that you have to look at why so many stories have not been told. And I think it's because it, it, the more we hear about what we've done before, what we've tried to do and failed before, the more it allows us to dream about like things we can do and dream beyond the confines of what is. So the more stories that we hear, the more stories that we can create, the more stories that we can actually live out. So when I think about history, for instance, and I think about locating us in the United States um, and the story of blackness, I think about how we grow up and we go to school and we learn so much about how black people were enslaved and in bondage and in all of this. And you don't hear about black resistance. You don't hear about the fact that like black people were not freed, black people claimed themselves mm. free, you know, and those distinctions and even how that story is told, because again, they're both telling the story of black people who were enslaved, but there's a difference in the telling and there's a difference in the receiving based on who is telling it and how it is that they're telling them. So when I think back to your question about emergent strategy um, and affecting change, emergent strategy for me, well, the thing that emergent strategy did a lot for me in terms of a storyteller was being like, oh, actually it is really, really important to just keep telling stories. I was at a point, like I was saying of like defeat and like grief and heartbreak of just being like, wow, is any of this actually going to make a difference uh, ever? in the world, particularly because I'd been doing a lot of reading. And when I was reading stuff from like the 80s, I would both get like really excited and like, wow, this is exactly what I wrote in my journal the other day and then be really depressed. Like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I wrote, exactly in, what I wrote in my, my journal. journal the other day. But then when you, uh, think, I think this is where like the, the, the fractal and the interconnectedness and emergent strategy started to make me feel good. But I was like, oh, this is, these are, we are seeds potting each other. Like we might not be in the same time or in the same place or in the same geography or in the same generation, but what we are is people who are like continuing to build on each other and like see each other, a reflection of each other and grow and increase the shape and the size and the scale of the impact of all of the thoughts that we're doing. And so I think, you know, back to the language of emergent strategy, we're all just out here pollinating. Like that's really what we out here doing is spreading these ideas 
to and through one another. So instead of getting defeated again, that you don't have this like brand new idea that like someone actually articulated this in the 80s and it was actually also articulated in the 60s and also the 40s and also in the last century. It's like, wow, look at this legacy and lineage of belonging to dreaming about freedom that I belong to. This means for a long time, right? There have been people like me who are chaos minded. Can you imagine what it took to imagine yourself? Sometimes I'll be sitting next to my grandmother who like went through colonization and is just at so much more peace than I ever am. And I'm like, you figured it out. Like y'all, y'all did that thing where you looked at an impossible thing and you said, but we are possible. And now you're just living in the math aftermath of it where you're just kind of like, yeah, we'll sort through all the details. But just to be clear, what you're not about to do is tell me impossible is a thing in my life. And I think what we're stuck in right now, not just here in the US, but across the world is like, people truly and deeply believe that what we're in is impossible to undo. And without that belief, that core underlying belief that we don't need presidents, that we don't need countries, that we don't need any of these structures and things, which to be clear, have not just given us like all these horrible, mm -hmm. terrible, like war and genocide. They, they've also given us a lot of these benefits that so many of us enjoy as a condition of what we know to be humanity, right? But if we believe that we don't need those things in order to access, access those things in, in part of humanity, I think undoing all of this would be a lot easier as well. Wage love. Wage love. Wage love. Wage love. Wage love, wage love. This is for Shetty R. Dedicate mm -hmm. this with a heavy heart. Mm. Thank you for that. I love that your grandma's like, hey, you know, like yep. y'all can get all that, but we have done this thing already. Yep. And now what does it mean to live in the aftermath? And I think that speaks to yep. um, some things around like iteration and adaptation, right. like that if we can lean into, it doesn't right. have to be everything and there is no landing point, then we can be in the movement of a thing and claim, claim the real um, shifts and changes and still know there's more to come and not feel like we haven't done like what we have done or what we're not capable of doing right do you identify as an abolitionist I, I do I think I think people identified me as one before I knew I was one again I just called it all chaos minded I'm like I look at it it don't work get rid of it people say that's abolitionist I'm like cool let's do this <laughs> and I also think when people when we're talking about are you an abolitionist or you're not an abolitionist people so limit the conversation on abolition to the prison industrial complex so are you a prison abolitionist and i'm like yes but when i hear you ask the question of like am i an abolitionist i'm not limiting 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 it to a certain container i am saying generally my existence is like yeah fuck all this shit all of it because there's something else because there is something else y'all and not only is there something else right? I believe it's better. And I think we also need to interrogate what people like what mean when they say better, because I want to be clear when I when I say better, I don't mean it will be like, you'll get everything that we have here. And then some and it'll be great. You might not we might not ever get some of the shit that we were promised the spoils of this world, we might not ever get them ever again, if we give this world up. 
but I believe that there are things that are better than what this world has actually given us that are more equitable, that actually feel better, not just like when we consume them, but when we actually just like are in relationship to each other, they actually feel good for us as a collective body, not just in our individual bodies. I believe that better is out there only if we really are willing to let go of all of these things and when i say all of these things i'm not just talking about like mass incarceration i'm also talking about like if we like come from like quote unquote good families and all that shit are you willing to abolish the family even if it means abolishing what you knew as family a lot of people are like oh i thought we were just talking about abolishing the bad shit i'm like uh, we can also we can abolish it's not like once we abolish things too we can't take from what we've known right and what we've gone through and what we've experienced but I guarantee you, even if we take from all that, if we're actually moving from like a, uh, a ground place of like raw beginning, it's not going to manifest itself in the same kind of way. So it is a, like, are we actually willing to lose all of this and believe that there's something better that we can't even actually imagine? And that's the wildest part about it. You will have to be able to like let go of this shit without actually being able to tangibly say this is what's on the other side and worth it. So now you've got me thinking about um, uh, Emil Cacabral. Mm. And uh, I think you we sent might. me that speech. That's the National Liberation and Culture is yes. the one I go to. Yeah, again, because this, um, this idea of like, what is the next iteration of culture doesn't, mm-hmm. um, doesn't just grab back from the past and say like, mm-hmm. what, what before colonization, what we were doing before, we just need to bring that forward because then right. there was all the lived experience that happened during it and right. all the things that, like you said, may have accumulated or this world has offered um, that we don't actually necessarily want. Um, right. uh, and we can unpack to create that which is next, right? So you're not necessarily bringing yes. just on my family forward because it was a great experience for me to grow up, but is that <laughs> actually the great experience that we want to collectively have that actually cares right. for all of us? Right. Moment, right. Like, and, and I think I, what I, when I, what comes to mind when you say that is something of frustration for me when people talk about like uh, indigeneity and Africanness as someone who is African and like has um, direct roots, roots, <laughs> direct roots to my indigenous uh, side of the family. Like most of my people live in the village and are out there just doing village things all the time. I love um, things. I love this. Because, because we are people right? And now I'm just talking about Black people across the world in different ways and forms, but collectively, because we are people who have had our culture so, like, attacked, taken from us, stripped from us, stolen from our cultures, all of these different things, right? There's this really urgent grasping that I feel from Black folks I've met from all over this world, right? To hold on to what it is that we know that we come from, all of it. And it keeps us from doing what I believe is like every generation's responsibility, which is like interrogating the cultures that they come from and being like, it's our responsibility to like steward the culture culture forward and towards something that we actually want it to be while also leaving behind these remnants of the thing while knowing that, you know, leaving things behind does not mean that that culture gets left behind. I think it's difficult now when you're at a people whose culture has been decimated in so many ways that we do feel like we have to hold on to so many different things because we have so little to hold on to sometimes. And so we, it's ultimately again, a scarcity mindset of being like, oh, what was behind us was taken 
us so much. And it's like, that's a truth. That is a reality. And also, do we believe that what is before us is actually even more than what it is that we came from? Even if we don't know what it is that we came from, we are, we are of what it is that we came from. And we don't need to know it in the same ways that the people who have constructed this world tell us knowing is, right? And so even when I think about like inheritance, right? There are things I don't know about my family, my culture, my this and that. And then people will be like, the person you were named after, you are literally that person. And I'm like, cool. And I used to question it, but instead of questioning, now I'm like, actually, let me just accept that as fact, right? Let me just assume that these people know that and they knew that person and they know me. What is it that they're actually trying to tell me about myself and this thing in the world, even if I don't understand my culture, my whatever, in the way that I would want to or wish to or other people imagine that culture looks like? So I don't know. I think I when I think about just now we're now we're in realms of like identity and Africanness and blackness and history and claiming and who, what is culture and what, what is our collective culture as black people, as people of African descent. And I think our culture is of creating like that's, that's all. And not that that's always the, the lineage and trajectory that we've been on, but the world that we're in right now, our collective culture is actually just being like, what can't we do? Word. We did that remix. What's next? Uh-huh, cool. Now we did that in Swahili. Next. Excellent. Now that's done in South Africa. Like, <laughs> and so I don't know. And, and I also think the African continent right now, there's just, there's so much that is happening there right now that I've really been challenged by the lack of like contemporary Pan-Africanism and connectivity particularly because there's, we are able to theoretically connect with each other a lot more, but there's a lack of like conversation, I think sometimes around like people of African descent across the world of then like, how are you negotiating blackness, belonging to the present, belonging to the past and belonging to the future? So I know you do a good bit of work with young people. Uh, um, and, um, what do you think young people have to teach us about that? Mm. Teach about a culture of creating, a teach us about a culture of connection. Ooh. Well, first and foremost, I believe that young people are literally like the, the battleground with where like the, the fight for the future is being waged, right? Because they're, they're like clay. It's just raw possibility. So many of us, no matter how like magical and brilliant and da 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 that we are, we are actually functionally spending most of our time unlearning as opposed to learning. Young people, people who have not been like, who haven't had the, the, this world seep under their skin and stay there for long enough where they don't even know what their skin originally felt like, those are the people that excite me. Those are the people who got possibility. They be asking me questions where I'm just like, oh, I thought I had started at the root of something until I said, so here's where we're starting. They're like, why are we starting there? And I'm like, I didn't know we could start somewhere else. I'm sorry, shit. Oh my God, you're right. Why wouldn't I think that? Because I too am of this world, right? I am thir almost 30 years of this world. So when I talk to a five-year-old who's like, and I'm like, oh, you can't do that. And they're like, why? And I give them my reason why. And I look at their face and they're like, that reason doesn't make sense. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, actually. That reason doesn't make sense. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So yeah, I just think that people who are in a process of learning have a lot more to offer 
than people who are in a process of unlearning and then relearning, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. And, and there's, a, um, there's, a curi- there's a curiosity that it feels like um, uh, is embedded in that, that I think we are, most of us who have been uh, um, trained by this world have lost. Just, just this. And not just curiosity, but a lack mm. of shame around curiosity. Because I actually don't think that many of us have lost that curiosity. I just don't think, I think too many of us, the shame factor, then we have been socialized to practice shame more than curiosity. Mm. So in this like last like two years of my life, I've really just like leaned back into being a mad question asker and people love it. They're like, and I thought it would annoy people being curious, being all that, but people are like, oh my God, I would love to talk about these things. No one ever asked. And also I want to ask you, and I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Here we are now. Like people actually... I think there's a kernel of, I do not believe you can actually kill curiosity in a human being. Mm. In a living thing, I don't believe that you can do it. I believe you can teach people to fear it. I believe you can teach people to devalue it. And that's what's happened right now. I believe you can socialize people into feeling like it's not worth it, the risk of being curious, because there's also a risk of curiosity. People might think, you know, you don't know what you're mm-hmm. talking about or they, whatever it is that brings on that, that shame response that we do. But the last like two years of my life, I think I've been actively practicing curiosity and the rewards are just so much better than what the fear promised. What have you learned practicing curiosity these last few years? Oh, number one, that people know a lot of shit. Like that most people constantly undervalue their knowledge because no one has legitimized it for them or asked them about it in a way that they had to articulate it so that they understand like, oh, I actually know what I'm talking about. And that's myself included. Um, curiosity also has taught me like, that I'm a strange person. Like, <laughs> I think we're all actually really, really strange people, but the shame keeps us like a little bit more, you know, in tune or in the straight jacket of like what we're socialized as a human being. Um, but the, the questions that come to my mind tell me not like they tell me about what I'm interested in because there are some things that I see that I'm like I don't understand that and I have no desire to understand that but the things that I have more of a desire to understand that now is information about myself I'm like oh why do I want to know these things why why do I value this kind of information what will I even do with this information once I have it because sometimes people are just out here hoarding knowledge and I'm like that's not curiosity that's that's something else and do you think that this, this practice of curiosity, I'm following this thread just for a little bit, because I really do believe like this culture of curiosity is so, so inherent in, in um, what it means to create, to be a creator, right? Like to, to feel like you both have the ability to create and then what gets created. Um, what is it, what does curiosity grow in you? Like, what do you have muscles for that, um, that are stronger now because of a practice of curiosity? I think first and foremost, I feel just a lot less judgmental. You know, I think judgment is curiosity stopped. Like, it's like, I actually want to know more, but I'm, instead of getting to the next place, I'm just going to stop here with an assumption or with a, this is what I think. And I'm like, ah. Actually, what I've realized from curiosity is I, I don't know a lot. 
And I don't know. And even what I think I know, I don't know. And even what I think I think, I don't think I know what I think. So like, there's just something about moving through the world, asking questions as opposed to having answers that is also really freeing and releasing. Um, and allows me to understand sometimes too that like questioning is the answer, especially when we're in some shit that don't actually make sense. We should have a lot of questions. And a lot of the answers that are articulated aren't gonna make, there aren't a lot of answers right now because this shit don't make sense. And then that's a place to start from too. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I didn't answer your question. So run it by me again. <laughs> What kind of muscles does this practice of curiosity build? What are you able to navigate differently? Um, how does it shape how you move the world? Like what kind of muscles um, does a practice of curiosity shape? Courage. I think curiosity and courage are, are foundationally linked. It is really hard to be curious if you're not courageous. And I think we think about is there a reverse relationship? I don't know, I haven't thought about it in the other way, but I know that it's really difficult to be um, courageous if you're not curious about things. And part of the reason I'm, I am um, asking specifically about like what muscles do you feel like it's grown in you is because we had uh, um, a situation at the immersion in New Orleans where uh, white supremacy showed up and there was um, a moment where folks weren't really clear on like what, how to navigate this moment. Right, um, how to navigate, how to care for the black people in the space. Um, um, what is the conversation that should happen? Um, and and there's a way in which curiosity and care. Also, I love alliteration, right? We didn't get to the poetics part, but we should have. Now we got curiosity, courage, and care. We just need one more. We got a pyramid. Um, <laughs> but there's a um, a way in which um, you were able to support the body of folks in the immersion um, sort of move through this moment. And, and part of my imagination, I'm wondering, is part of your practice of curiosity, was that helpful in navigating what felt like in that moment of really what was a, a, a conflict in the space? No. I think that experience in New Orleans was particularly challenging for me, not because of what actually like had to be done, but feeling like I had to do something that I was clear I didn't want to do and could have also been avoided if more care um, had been put into place. And so I think sometimes like I hear you on this like relationship between curiosity and care. And then I also see sometimes the way that curiosity can be careless where it's like, actually, you don't need to be curious about that. I could just tell you about that <laughs> like, <laughs> type of shit, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, that, that was a moment that I, 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 to this day, I'm still like challenged by because I think there's people 
who the the overwhelming like narrative I hear from people about was like, yeah, one day you did this thing, like you were you facilitated a moment or like you held the space. Yeah, that was great. And I'm like, I went home and cried for a really long time after that. And I don't think what showed up was white supremacy because I don't think whiteness is supreme. I think that shit is mediocre and basic as fuck and harmful. I think what showed up was anti-blackness and it could have actually really been avoided in the space um, had curiosity been less prioritized and care for black people was more prioritized. And so I think especially because at that point we had had multiple immersions that were multiracial and at least in my, what I've heard from other people in, all, in almost every single one, if not every single one, whiteness and white fuckery had shown up. Why are we still curious about what whiteness does then? Actually, we just need to be careful to make sure that that shit doesn't show up and keep us from doing the actual goals of the work that it is that we're doing. So as much as I like love and lean deeply into curiosity, I do believe that there is a point where continuing to practice it as if you don't also have other information is actually an act of carelessness and harm and honestly like anti-blackness because then it goes into this like you know, wandering and imagination that I really hear like articulated by white folks who are not actually like grounded and rooted in the actual reality of like what is happening. No, that makes beautiful sense. And, and thank you for sharing that. I think that, um, that ground, that, that grounded and rootedness is something that if you don't bring to an emergency strategy space, sometimes you don't understand, right? Like, uh, um, you don't you don't get it there. You have to come with it, or it can be built into it in a way that it hasn't been. So I appreciate you sharing um, what that experience was like for you, uh, and and just grateful for both this moment and for the moment then. And what does it mean to care and love Black people as deeply as you do? One of the ways I know you to move through the world. You want to take a minute? Or are you good? Oh, no, this is one of the ways I move through the world. Okay. <laughs> All right. Beautiful. Um, is this a poet? Like, what is poetics as, uh, and how do, when, when you see things written, like, the poetics of space, the poetics of this, how do you understand this idea of poetics? Okay. So, I was thinking about poetics, poetry, imagination, possibility. And one of the things I know I've always appreciated, spoken words specifically, um, is it made me feel possible in a lot of ways. I remember the first time I saw a spoken word show was because uh, my mom took me to a show. And, it, and before that, I hated poetry. Like, I really was like, fuck poetry. This, this stuff really sucks. Like, I don't understand why people are doing this. And then I saw a spoken word and I was like, I think that's how I want to do this. There was a campaign that was happening called the 45 Lies Campaign which had asked different writers and poets to choose a lie from Donald Trump, the 45th president and respond to it in 45 seconds and like some sort of creative and poetic response. And I've been talking to Ron Reagan and some other folks in this group conversate just around like feeling low-key just like disappointed in like what the mainstream creatives were, creativity was like doing in response to this moment to articulate it and also to challenge it and move us beyond it. And so when I was invited by a friend to do that campaign, I wanted to do it, but some about me just 
I was really, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. Um, and this is kind of back to what we were talking about in that podcast about like getting to like the actual root and core of things. Like what is it that we're actually trying to say and do in this campaign? Because for me, there's been, you know, in the last decade, I've witnessed like a lack of arts and culture, I think in movement spaces. And so this latest iteration since the summer has been like refreshing in some ways because art has been present, but then it's kind of made me look at, oh, what are we saying and doing and expanding when we say things as opposed to just saying. So I was going through my archive as I was telling you for my book and I found this piece that I had started like two, three years ago based on the poem, I want a dyke for president that I incorporated into this piece. So I'll share with you the piece, I want a dyke for president, which was written by Zoe Leonard and then I'll read you my poem. So I want a dyke for president by Zoe Leonard. I want a dyke for president. I want a person with AIDS for president and I want a fag for vice president. And I want someone with no health insurance and I want someone who grew up in a place where the earth is so saturated with toxic waste that they didn't have a choice about getting leukemia. I want a president that had an abortion at 16 and I want a candidate who isn't the lesser of two evils. And I want a president who lost their last lover to AIDS, who still sees that in their eyes every time they lay down to rest, who held their lover in their arms, who knew that they were dying. I want a president with no air conditioning, a president who has stood in line at the clinic, at the DMV, at the welfare office, and has been unemployed and laid off and sexually harassed and gay bashed and deported. I want someone who has spent the night in the tombs and had a cross burned on their lawn and survived rape. I want someone who has been in love and been hurt, who respects sex, who has made mistakes and learned from them. I want a black woman for president. I want someone with bad teeth, someone who has eaten hospital food, someone who cross-dresses and has done drugs and been in therapy. I want someone who has committed civil disobedience. And I want to know why this isn't possible. I want to know why we started learning somewhere down the line that a president is always a clown, always a John and never a hooker, always a boss and never a worker, always a liar, always a thief and never caught. And so this poem is called mm -hmm. One Through 45 Have Lied. 46 through 100 will be no different. And it's in conversation with, I want a dyke for president. Yeah. Oh, silly humans, how quickly we forget. We who were once ruled by thrones and those who told us they were born to sit upon them. We the descendants of those who overthrew dynasties and decapitated dictators. Who are we in this moment to not remember how much we've already overcome? How dare we dream so small? No, I don't want another four years of Trump. I don't want any Republican for president, but I don't want a Democrat either. No Democrats, no dykes, no people who've been unemployed. I don't want a black woman in office, not Oprah, Ava, or even Michelle. No immigrants in the Oval, no matter how many or which drugs they've done. I don't want a president at all. After all, what is a president but a small king? An emperor whose new clothes I cannot see. An agreement made collectively we can unmake just as easily. I pledge no allegiance to America just because white men defiled it with borders and called the result a country. I do not confuse dying to vote with dying for freedom even though they meant the same thing at one time in history. I will not beg for a seat at a table whose legs are bent backs and we dine only on scarcity. I want us to dream beyond the dictates of our dystopia. To admit that too many have just noticed that the ending we feared was coming came long ago and we have simply been living in its shadow. I want us to admit more than this being a failure from the start to say that America never was great and never can be. That sometimes, sometimes the rot is so deep in the root, a pruning does not breed possibility. That any hope for a harvest lies in the fields that we sprouted from being raised and re-sown entirely. And I wanna know why this isn't possible. 
I want to know why we started learning somewhere down the line that a president is always needed, that a country is always needed, that the police are always needed, that any of this has ever been and will always be needed. And I want to know how after slavery, genocide, colonialism, and all the ways they've renamed the taking, how in the world they convinced us that they knew how to run one better than we did or do. And I know it's sometimes hard to imagine that all of us can truly get free, but the thing is we already are. We always have been, no matter the master or the monarch, but only if we dare to dream beyond what we could see, only if we understood that reskinning or regendering the beast would never change the rumbling in its belly. See, sometimes, sometimes I dream I will live to see the day a child is born so free they will hear this poem and wonder what the hell a president even is. And I believe we can do it. And I accept we will be ourselves in the doing. I accept there will be disagreement, that we will conflict as we unravel our imposed inhumanity, as we realize we have less to learn than to unlearn in order to remember our collective body. And I want to know why this isn't possible. I want to know why we started learning somewhere down the line that a president is always needed, that a country is always needed, that the police are always needed, that any of this has ever been and will always be needed. And I want to know how we were asked to write to one lie from one president in one poem when the sum of this country's presidency is nothing but an untruth. 45 lies, yes, but so did 44, and so will 46, and so will our writing if we do not speak to the entirety of this. Oh, silly writers, how quickly we forget. We who were once ruled by thrones and those who told us they were born to sit upon them. We the descendants of those who overthrew dynasties and decapitated dictators. Who are we in this moment to not remember how much we've already overcome? How dare we write so small? Yes. You know, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I think this is an abolitionist poem. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, you know, I was prompted that the, the spirit hopped on my back and said, do you consider yourself an abolitionist? You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> like it was never in any of my questions. It just kind of came up listening to you. But back to this, like the naming of the South as a storyteller um, was because I, because everybody was calling me a poet and I really didn't feel like a poet. Right. Like, people would be like, yeah, you're a poet. You should do these poetry things. You know, you should submit to this journal or you should do these things. Like, this is what poets are doing. And then I would do them and then I would get rejected by everything. And I'd be like, wow, I don't think I'm a poet. Like everything that it, I'm being told legitimizes you as a poet is telling me that I'm not good enough to do that. And yet I've really felt my whole life, like this is the only thing I know I'm meant to do even before it was articulated to me as poetry. So I released the title of poet. I said, I'm not a poet anymore. I've never was a poet. In fact, what I am and has always been is a storyteller and also a story, right? And I'm constantly just trying to articulate myself in the way that I like move through the world and in relationship to the world. And so when I think too of like poetry and the relationship between poetry and poetics and why people think I'm a poet and how we've like constructed the understanding of a poet it's because I feel deeply I think that's what people when they tell you I'm a poet when they say I move through the world like poetry is because you can't engage with poetry without feeling deeply and all I do is feel <laughs> like people like, like earlier like two months ago I was like I think I finally settled on a term if, if I'm going to claim the term organizer I think I've finally settled on the type that feels like it identifies me, I think I'm an intimacy organizer. Whatever it is that people keep trying to tell me they want for me to do or blah, 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 when they show up, like, 
I, there was a period of time where I would try to be a quote unquote organizer. And I was like, and people were like, this isn't what we asked for. And I was like, but this is organizing. <laughs> and then I was like, I think they were just asking for a presence in a different kind of ways, because there's a different, there's a way too that if you, if your presence is both like chaos and also intentional, there's something that people like pick up on in there. Um, and also again, the, the, like the trust of like, why, why are you doing this? I just feels right. And when I say that think people, people believe that I believe it feels, even if they don't believe what I said, they believe that I believe it. And that invitation into like deep belief, into deep feeling, that's, that's the curiosity. Like, that's what people are the most curious about. I've realized when they're engaging with me is not just this, it's not necessarily like what I'm saying or like, because I say again, some shit that's like new or like, wow, no one has ever said or articulated this before, but there is a deep conviction and feeling. I'm like, y'all, I'm not saying this shit because I think it sounds good or it's going to make me sound good. I'm saying this shit because I really fucking believe it, right? And I believe it so much that I'll orient my world and my life and the way that I move through it. And that's poetics to me. To, to lean so deep into feeling that it is no longer just feeling, it is actually action now. It's moving through the world. That's poet, poetry in motion, literally. If poetry is the feeling, then poetry in motion is is the action of it, you know? And not being so afraid of that feeling of that erotic place and not also trying to understand it, right? This idea that we can only do things if we understand them, not. Understanding, I think, also looks and is articulated differently. So I don't necessarily have to be able to like write a fucking theory about something in order to understand something. I can live something and show you that I understand something and never be able to articulate it. And I think more and more these days, I'm more interested in people who articulate theories and, you know, practice and all those things with themselves, with their personhood, as opposed to with their words or with their this. So that when someone asks, like, are you an abolitionist? Not because I'm like, yes, this is how I define abolition, blah, 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 blah. But because when they see me out in the world in practice, they're like, that's what abolition is. So that person must be an abolitionist, whether or not they claim the term abolition. Or whether or not they claim the term emergent strategy practitioner. We see you in the world <laughs> and we call you in because we see how you move. The way you move through the world, the way you articulate how you move through the world, the way you love Black people. There's so many things that um, uh, I could go on and on about. Um, my privilege in getting to be um, a part of your life in any way. And so I just want to say personally, thank you. And then on behalf of ESI, I thank you so much for taking this time and sharing with us um, all that you have. We, we take none of it, none of it lightly, none of it for granted. This podcast is produced by Natalie Parrott. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Complex Movements, a Detroit-based artist collective. The music provided is from the soundtrack of the performance installation, Beware of the Dandelions. To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.